The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. On Monday, the International Institute for Strategic Studies issued its 180-some-odd-page report, Cyber Capabilities and National Power Net Assessment, assessing 15 leading cyber powers on their capabilities. The two-year study found that only one nation ranks in the first tier, the United States. Tier 2 includes Australia, Canada, China, France, Israel, Russia, and the United Kingdom. The third tier is composed of India, Indonesia, Iran, Japan, Malaysia, North Korea, and Vietnam. And it's my honor today to welcome Nigel Inkster on the program to discuss the key takeaways from the report and much more. He is the former Director of Intelligence and Operations at the Secret Intelligence Service, otherwise known as MI6, one of history's most storied intelligence organizations, who is now the Director of Transnational Threats and Political Risk at IISS. Nigel, thanks so very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, for me as well. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our coverage of naval warfare. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, Nigel, it's an extraordinary and methodical work that assessed the capabilities across the world, right? At very, very sound reasons why some other leading cyber powers uh, might, might not be on that list uh, as well, based on publicly available and empirical research. But it's an extraordinary conclusion that China, a nation that is seen as a leading cyber actor, is a decade behind the United States uh, in an across-the-board uh, sort of fashion. Walk us through the key findings of the report and what um, you guys wanted to achieve with it. What we wanted to achieve with it, in a nutshell, is to start to provide some uh, objective means of assessing the relative uh, cyber power of states, but linking this in with uh, power in uh, other key areas, because cyber power can, can never stand alone. It's always uh, got to be taken in context with other levers of national power. So this was our first objective, was to you know, uh, start establishing some benchmarks um, for, for um, determining uh, which you know, nations did exercise effective power in the cyber domain. And you know, it's a work in progress and always will be. We, 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 you know, the, the judgments in this report um, will not remain fixed um, uh, across time. And we looked at this from uh, a number of different uh, perspectives um, and, and, and in, in, in as holistic a fashion as, as possible. So we um, established seven categories for considering uh, the relative cyber power of states. And these were strategy and doctrine. Um, you know, is, is there you know, a national strategy and doctrines for the exercise of cyber power? Governance, command and control, um, which I think is self-explanatory. You know, uh, uh, core cyber intelligence capabilities. And this one we think is very important because if you look at the realities of uh, activities in the cyber domain, it tends to be uh, national intelligence services 
and affiliated entities that are um, the key actors and where the greatest expertise is, is to be found. Then cyber empowerment and dependence. Um, you know, how, how does a state uh, use cyber capabilities um, uh, you know, across um, national activities and how dependent uh, is it on uh, cyber capabilities um, to to function, and then there's cyber security and resilience. And I here would want to emphasise resilience because there is a lot that governments, private sector entities, and even individuals can do to minimise their vulnerability to hostile activities in the cyber domain. But it's also the case that if you are the subject of a focused state-led um, cyber attack by a sophisticated entity, uh, that attack will probably succeed to some degree. And so the key question then is how resilient are you? How quickly can you recover from that? How, how quickly can you bounce back? And then there's global leadership in cyberspace affairs. And we're talking here about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, setting technology standards, but also um, pursuing international agreements in areas like cyber governance uh, and, and cyber security, because um, you know, the, the, these arenas have become battlegrounds for very different uh, concepts of how governance uh, and security should apply in, in, in cyberspace. And then finally, and perhaps most important of all, is the one you talked about, which is offensive cyber capability. Um, you know, who, who's got it? How do they um, employ it? You know, what constraints, if any, do they operate under? And um, at bottom, how good are they? So these were the criteria uh, that, that, that we looked at. And based on that, um, our conclusion was that there was still only one globally, you know, one global um, top tier cyber power, and that is the United States. Um, and other major cyber powers like China, like Russia, uh, don't really quite measure up to the United States by virtue of having still some significant vulnerabilities. In the case of Russia, it is primarily the failure of the Russian state to effectively commercialize the very considerable cyber powers that it has. You know, nobody's going to buy uh, a Russian operating system or, or, or right. a piece of Russian hardware. They, 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 they effectively don't exist. Um, Russia also um, has significant um, weaknesses in terms of cybersecurity as does China. And, and this is because primarily both countries have prioritized content security over network security. If like in China, you're um, expending huge sums of money and uh, employing millions of people to monitor content and, you know, and, 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 and to um, censor um, your internet, um, logically you have less capability uh, to focus on network security. And I think that is you know, a clear vulnerability for both. But while China has uh, been very successful in commercializing its uh, cyber capabilities, 
um, and actually globalizing these um, you know, in ways that create facts on the ground, um, if you like. The simple fact is that um, the United States has just had much more time uh, in this arena. You know, the United States has much greater depth of expertise in foundational science, um, but also in creating a kind of um, cyber ecosystem, um, which is very strong in, in almost all areas. And this is something that China is uh, you know, um, working hard to replicate. But the bottom line is it does take time. And China has not yet had enough time to catch up with the United States in critical areas, an obvious case in point being uh, the design and manufacture of most advanced uh, semiconductors, right. where, where, where China's you know, very um, several generations behind uh, the United States. So, so you know, there are lots of different areas, um, but those are you know, the main uh, criteria that lead us to make a clear distinction and uh, between the United States um, and second tier powers um, like Russia and China. Uh, let, let me take you to the question of, of why the ranking um, matters and mm -hmm. what we should uh, be, be doing about it, right? Uh, the, the authors, and as you noted, uh, point out, right, this is empirical, observable. There's a little bit of judgment in this, but you guys are trying to do what you do for the military balance to a degree, which is uh, the world's most foundational military work, I would say, on an annualized basis. Shout out to uh, James Hackett and the entire team who produces that to, on the cyber side of things, give people a sense on what those capabilities are and, as you said, how to assess them. But a good friend of mine with uh, both uh, China, Pacific, and cyber experience pointed out that, you, you know, ultimately a country that's not as good can compensate for its shortcomings by a willingness uh, to use those capabilities to take risk uh, to try to to uh, advance its interests as it, as it sees them. Um, and, and that trade has been evidenced by China, by Russia, North Korea, Iran, and, and, and others. How do we need to prepare for these adversaries? How do we need to think about them? How do we need to prepare uh, yeah. for them? Because even though the Chinese are a decade behind us, or the mm. Russians may not have may not be as good, they're still both pretty good and maybe doing things that are highly problematic commercially yes. and uh, elsewhere. Yes, indeed. And of course, you know, we, we, with China, what we have in particular is the sheer volume of um, intellectual property theft that uh, China is engaged in um, in, in, in the cyber domain, um, which, which you know, as with so much else about China, the, 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 you know, the volume and intensity of activity um, is exceptional and you know, creates um, a, you know, constitutes a strategic phenomenon um, in its own right. It's been a, you know, a critical component um, in the deterioration in relations between the US and China that's taken place over the last few years. Um, in the case of Russia, what we have uh, seen is a lot of, you know, well, two things, really, a lot of you know, indiscriminate um, activity, um, broad in scale, um, and um, creating lots of collateral damage, but also um, serving as a kind of um, 
um, safe space for cyber criminals um, to engage in um, pervasive uh, and growing levels of uh, ransomware attacks uh, with, um, as you mentioned, a kind of interface between um, nation-state uh, nation activities uh, and criminal activities in ways where it's sometimes hard to draw um, an effective line. So you know, we, we do have this problem. The United States and its major allies, the Five Eyes, are very constrained um, um, in terms of, of what they do and restrained um, by choice. Um, which I think you know, reflects a kind of asymmetry of vulnerabilities, if you like, that right. at the end of the day, um, put crudely, there is a lot less that the United States and its Five Eyes allies want to steal from China and Russia uh, than the other way around. So we've always got to have that, that, that problem. Um, the, the, the United States in particular represents the kind of honeypot that everyone wants to get uh, access to. Uh, and whose capabilities everyone wants to try and uh, degrade. Um, so at that point, I think you, you really do need to think very hard um, about uh, the question of defense uh, and in particular resilience, uh, bouncing back uh, from attacks. And in that context, if we look at something like the solar winds attack, um, which uh, is, uh, I think, attributable to um, uh, Russian uh, intelligence service, probably the SVR. Um, we, we, we see a lot of the less, you know, key lessons there that, 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 that uh, um, you know, um, could result in um, um, much better levels of security. You know, my understanding is, and this is borne out, I think, by uh, a slew of uh, legal actions, uh, class actions brought against SolarWinds, that that company was arguably, to some degree, at least the author of its own and its clients' misfortunes um, because of the way that it was you know, taken out of public into private ownership under a heavily, heavily leveraged uh, arrangement, which was then dumped on the company, which then you know, engaged in all sorts of cost-cutting to the point where arguably the services it was providing were no longer fit for purpose. Um, and very few of SolarWinds clients actually asked, as I understand it, for, you know, um, any um, audit or, or, of um, the, you know, security um, that the, the company uh, purported to provide. Uh, nobody right. was you know, looking at this. Um, and so we've got, you know, we, there's, there's a lot of behaviors, I think, that need to be kind of hardwired into both U.S. government and the U.S. Uh, um, private sector, you know, that, that, that you know, um, could um, very significantly uh, reduce vulnerability in some key areas, and particularly in the area of ransomware. You know, these attacks are not that technically sophisticated and indeed the solar winds attack um, was not that technically sophisticated it's actually a lot easier to do one of these sort of very broad brush scattergun attacks same with not petia the you know the the, the right. attack against the ukraine uh, than it is to do the very precise surgical um uh, um uh, intrusions that the united states and its allies are, are much better at 
and which, when it really came to it, um, in a near conflict or conflict situations, would probably be far more effective in, in, in many ways in terms of disabling an adversary. So we need to keep that in you know that that in perspective when we're 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 looking at um, at, at these issues. That you know to 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 you know to a significant extent we do have you know our fate is in our own hands, um, uh, but we're still not very good at taking. Uh, the sometimes very basic steps that would make a big difference. So there's a uh, sort of a three-element uh, question, right? Does mm -hmm. deterrence in cyberspace work? Because there is robust debate on mm -hmm. this side of the Atlantic about whether or not deterrence works. Um, mm -hmm. And if it does work, how do you do it? And if it doesn't work, how do you do it, right? I mean, folks are talking about norms and standards. Yes. Uh, as, mm -hmm. as we discussed before we got started on this, there's this sense that the Russians and the Chinese aren't going to do anything to the groups that are within their their borders. Um, and then, you know, how to fight ransomware. Right. You brought the corporate governance mm. piece of it. The UK is working on um, it, I, I can't remember if you guys have adopted it uh, at this point. I think you have to make ransomware harder and ransomware insurance harder to get in mm. order to. How do we do this, Nigel? How do we yeah. you know, what does deterrence look like and how do you mm. rein in? this malign uh, activity or condoned activity that is imposing enormous costs, whether it's on the national health system or colonial pipeline or the British government or the American government or the Ukrainians or anyone else? Yeah, well, I mean, cyber deterrence is something that I've been thinking about uh, you know, for at least the last decade. Um, and I have to say that I, I, I still um, am unclear about um, what uh, cyber deterrence looks like. I mean, I think, you know, my, my, my short answer is that uh, pure cyber deterrence um, is unlikely to be uh, a realistic possibility that, you know, deterrence has, you know, if it is going to be effective at all, ha it has to have a cross-domain uh, component to it. So uh, a willingness and ability um, to, to sanction um, um, it, um, cyber uh, attacks uh, in other domains, um, as the United States has committed to doing um, pretty much since it uh, developed its first uh, cyber doctrine. Um, you know, it made it clear that, that the United States will reserve the right uh, in the event of a cyber attack to respond um, in whatever way it deems appropriate. Um, and I think you know, that that is increasingly um, starting to shape um, the cyber doctrines of, of other states. I mean, you're right in saying that, you know, there's a lot of work being done on norms. I've been involved in that myself as a commissioner in the Global Commission for the Stability of Cyberspace, also following, you know, the work in, you know, the GGE and, you know, other international fora um, where um, work has, you know, been um, done on, on a variety of, of, of norms of conduct. Well, the problem is, of course, absolutely right that you know norms are, are just that. They are not legally enforceable, um, and nor are they practically enforceable if uh, states don't want to um, um, you know, pursue them. And at bottom here, I think, is a sort of fundamental um, philosophical distinction between liberal democracies and authoritarian regimes. For, for years now, you know, we've seen the Russians and the Chinese 
you know, touting this code of conduct uh, around international fora, it must be looking pretty dog-eared by this stage, um, which is essentially uh, designed, you know, to try you know, to, to, to um, get um, the international community to agree some kind of um, arms control treaty for, for, for the cyber domain. Um, which um, is hugely problematic for all sorts of reasons, um, not least because it would enshrine in international law um, the right of states not just to um, enforce content control in their own um, sovereign domains, but also to right. impose on other states an expectation to do the same and, and would also you know, have implications for how states interpreted human rights, et cetera, et cetera. It's not you know, a viable proposition. But for a, a country like Russia, um, um, essentially what's happening is, is that uh, you know, Russia has been you know, um, warning about the threat of what it calls information weapons since the late 1990s. And a lot of its activities are in effect saying to us, well, you know, we warned you about this. You didn't take um, our warning seriously. Now look what's happening. So we've got this problem, and you know there there are no um, easy uh, solutions to it. Um, you know, um, forward defense, and you know, um, and, and and all the other doctrines that have been adopted by you know sort of U.S. cyber command, um, you know, may have had you know tactical uh, impact, but strategically, I don't think uh, there's much evidence that uh, it has sort of changed any, anybody else's calculation fundamentally. So, so from a strategic perspective, I'm not sure that, that uh, you know, the, the, these um, approaches um, are, are going to have uh, an effect. Um, and if we look at the history of nuclear arms control, it took decades you know, to, to, to get um, to meaningful um, outcomes. You know, we're still in the foothills in, in, in the cyber domain, right. and it's going to you know, be a while, if ever, before we ever get to a point where um, we, you know, we, we, we have you know, effective mechanisms for um, imposing constraints. So essentially, you know, we're in a messy, conflicted, difficult situation. That, you know, there are no simple solutions. And then, then it goes back to um, you know, the essential uh, considerations of defense and resilience. You know, how, how, how do we you know, minimize our, you know, our vulnerability and, and, and how do we uh, ensure that we can uh, bounce back quickly? Do, do you think Dmitry Alperovich was uh, on the program? He's with the Silverado Accelerator now, obviously one of the co-founders mm -hmm. of CrowdStrike. Um, and, you know, was talking about regulation of digital currency, for example, to try to make mm. this harder. What, what are and, and obviously the ransomware legislation in, in the UK, are there mm. better practices we should be adopting? Right. I mean, you you mentioned, um, you know, before we got started, we were discussing sort of the U.S., that the U.S. may have focused too much on offense and not as much on defense. Right. Defend forward mm. is is effectively offensive. You know, what yeah. are what are some basic basics, Nigel, we need to focus mm. on as as nation states, as um, industry, but also mm. as individuals. I mean, you know, I mean, p people have mobile phones with their names on it, uh, right? Mm. Um, uh, or uh, are, you know, just use the same password, right? Apple even makes mm. it easy for you. It has a program that tells you organically, you've used this same 
password 55 times, right? How many people go yeah. in and actually change their passwords? How do you need to think about the whole? Because it's, it's a battleground, but it affects every single thing we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there, there's a whole range of things that we need to do. And, you know, um, a, a lot, you know at, at, at you know, the sort of macro level, so to speak, um, I think, you know, there has to be, you know, more effective coordination between government um, and the private sector. Um, and also, you know, um, a greater, you know, sort of rolling out of, of, of cyber expertise beyond where it's currently um, focused in government, which is, you know, in in places you know, in the United States like like NSA um, in in the UK in GCHQ, you know, if you're investigating ransomware, um, Homeland Security uh, and the FBI um, need you know to to be able to deploy and access sophisticated um, cyber investigation tools of themselves, either themselves or Using United States very impressive uh, uh, private uh, cybersecurity capabilities, but you know one one way or another, it's got to be done. And we've seen actually with the most recent ransomware, the Colonial ransomware attack, that, that actually um, it, it it proves not that difficult to trace um, you know, the, the the flow of money into in, into Bitcoin and get it back. And the FBI very successfully did that with a significant proportion of the colonial uh, pipeline ransomware. So, you know, that that is um, an area where I think we're, we're, we're learning a lot. Um, and yes, you know, if, if we do uh, find ourselves moving in the direction of, of digital currencies, and it's interesting to note that China uh, now has some you know, very advanced uh, preparations for a national uh, digital currency, um, the, the tracking payments is going to uh, be orders of magnitude uh, easier than, than than it currently is. So, so that's one thing. But yes, um, I mean, I think you know, here in the UK, we've got a thing called the you know National Cybersecurity Centre, um, where you've got, you know, as it were, you know, the respectable bits of GCHQ together with um, some 200 uh, representatives of private sector companies uh, sitting in the same space, exchanging information and best practice. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, a perfect model, um, but I think, you know, it, it, it is, um, you know, clearly the way forward in terms of ensuring that uh, um, important information that needs to be made public is uh, made public in, in in ways that people can 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 do something about. Um, so um, you know, a lot of work needs uh, to be done on that. Um, and I think people, you know, major organisations in particular, I think, need to adopt not just a security mindset um, when it comes to this, but they need to adopt a counterintelligence mindset. Mm. Um, a mindset which which asks a question, you know, who is going to most likely to want to mess with us? What do we know about them? What do we know about their capabilities, their modus operandi? Um, where are they most likely to attack us? Um, and how most effectively can we uh, defend uh, against that? Um, and the answers, you know, for, for different organizations um, may, may look rather different. Um, but they will involve things like um, how do you segment 
your information so somebody getting into your system doesn't automatically scoop the pool. How do you walk the walk to ensure that you know, your security updates um, are actually being implemented? You know, make sure that your systems administrator isn't using a password that consists of password or one, two, three, four, five, and you'd be surprised how many you know, uh, you know, times that, 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 that still applies. You know, how many uh, private sector companies have a director on the board whose sole responsibility is for cybersecurity, who spends his or her day going around the organization, making sure that uh, you know, the people who are supposed to be doing these things are actually doing them. You know, have you got a plan for re you know, replacing and updating your hardware on a sort of meaningful life cycle, which these days is three to five years? Have you got legacy systems? What are you doing about them? You know, all these questions need to be addressed. I want to ask you, uh, uh, Nigel. Uh, you know, given given your background and enormous experience in, in intelligence and and cyber and and just general security, what's the line between what is legitimate intelligence collection and what is a malicious or causes belli action? Right after Solar Winds and Hafnium, you know, there was this sort of charge of you know this isn't intelligence carrying, this is war. Uh, whereas seasoned intelligence professionals have said. Yeah, that's, it was just good intelligence gathering and, and we didn't defend ourselves, as, as was the OPM hack. Where do you fall on that, on, on how much of this is legitimate, illegitimate, and where that line lies? Well, I think that, uh, yes, I, I, I align with those who say that um, SolarWinds and, and, and Hafnium were kind of within you know, um, the realm of accepted behaviors because this was about uh, co collecting uh, intelligence. The problem, of course, is that intelligence collection is a necessary prelude um, to uh, sabotage or damage. And the only thing that really uh, distinguishes the two is ultimately a few lines of code. Um, so it's getting more difficult uh, here. And, and um, of course, it's understandable that states in peacetime will want to um, ensure that they have good understanding of their adversaries' vulnerabilities uh, against the day that they do find themselves in conflict. So the line is getting you know, harder and harder to draw. But my sense is that uh, it, it should be possible to, to come to some sort of pragmatic agreement um, about the undesired, you know, the, the unacceptability of behaviors that cause um, unconstrained uh, collateral damage you know, in, in ways that impact on the lives of ordinary citizens in peacetime. Now, this, of course, then raises the question of what in today's world is peacetime? Um, because there are those states who agree with Thucydides that, uh, you know, the, the, that uh, peace is um, simply um, an armistice and a war that is always um, ongoing. And I think so, that, you know. Yeah, I mean, to, to that point, are we at war now, Nigel? It's just that um, it looks different than what we think of war looking like. I don't think we're at war, but what we are, what, what we have entered in, in, you know, is, is, is a phase um, in human civilization where major states are engaging in. Um, constant uh, contestation uh, at a level just below the kind of law of armed conflict threshold, if you like. Um, and so, no, we're not at war. You know, nobody, to my knowledge, has yet died as a result of activity undertaken within the cyber domain. 
you know, solar winds did not result in significant physical damage or, you know, harm uh, to human beings. So in that sense, it is different. So I think there is, you know, a clear distinction to be made. But at the same time, the fact that it's possible to undertake uh, very significant and consequential actions in this grey zone that has turned, come to be termed, um, is dangerous because of the risk that uh, one st or other state actor or even non-state actor uh, might uh, inadvertently cross a red line that has uh, escalatory consequences. And that, that, that is a problem we now face. And, and very briefly, do you think the Article 5 extension to cyber really changes anything, in part because of the blurriness of that line? Well, I think it does make it a lot more difficult, yes. Um, you know, in an Article 5, um, yeah, it, 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 it was designed, you know, to, to uh, protect against uh, physical attacks. So applying it in the cyber domain, I, you know, I don't think we've really quite worked out uh, what that means yet and, and, and how in practice it should apply. Nigel, it was an absolute honor having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. I uh, look forward to having you back on to talk about some transnational threats and how we need to think about them, uh, because I know you're a first order strategist who does spend a lot of time uh, trying to think of uh, a better future. Thanks so very, very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Raul. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman, and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.